Well, hello, Heritage family. It is so good to be with you as we continue in this Our Heritage message series. My name is Jeremiah Gomez. I get to be one of our teaching pastors here. I get to work with all of our campus pastors and our family life pastors, but I also get to serve right now as the interim campus pastor at our bilingual Vida Nueva campus. Um, I am so thankful for each of you who are part of this, our heritage journey. Being part of who we are as a church family has really been one of the great joys and privileges of my life. And so I want to welcome all of you who are joining us here today. Those of you here in Rock Island, our Bentendorf campus family, men at Kiwani, those of you watching online, including our Viva family, who I'm sure are catching us there as well. You know, this conversation that we've been having about our heritage has gotten me to thinking about my own heritage. And uh, as I get to know people, as I get to interact with them, uh, even though my last name is Gomez, sometimes people are surprised to learn that I have uh, a Hispanic background, that my heritage is, uh, is of a Mexican family on my dad's side. And, you know, that's often because I, I don't look completely like I fit that part. Uh, and so I thought it might be helpful to just kind of bring you up to speed a little bit on my own journey as it relates to some of, of my heritage. And so uh, the, I feel like the best way for us to interact with that is for me to get you to envision a couple of different family tables with me, okay? So the first family table I'm asking you to envision sitting at is a, is a great big family table at uh, our, our little working ranch that I grew up on with my grandma and grandpa Strasshofer, all right? Now, if that name sounds European, it's because it is, all right? So that's my mom's family, Grandma and Grandpa Strasshofer, and our extended family. And a typical Sunday there would look like some hard work on the little ranch, and then going to church together, and then coming home for a great big family meal with our extended family, aunts and uncles and cousins, all around this table. And on that table, we would have like fresh roast beef and potatoes and carrots from the garden and, and just a really great big meal, maybe some really good homemade pie for dessert. I kind of grew up in, uh, in a broken home, and so I spent some weekends with Grandma and Grandpa Strasshofer, and I spent some weekends with Nana and Tata Gomez. And Nana and Tata Gomez, their rhythm was a little bit different, but still we'd have big family dinners on Sunday. We might go to mass together and then come back and, and play some games and then have this great big family dinner. And on the table there, they would have tamales and tacos and arroz and frijoles. And how many of you are starting to get just a little bit hungry? Yeah, I'm sorry for that, but not really. Right? My Nana used to make the best tortillas I have ever had. And, uh, and that was just a, a great part of our experience together there. And so as an eight or nine or 10 year old boy, you know, I was coming to awareness that these two family tables were different. They were both certainly family, but they were a little bit different. The people at the tables looked and sounded a little bit different from one another, but they were my family and they were part of my story. 
at the meat and potatoes table, the conversation would often go to how hard life was. Because if you've ever tried to grow anything or feed anything in the desert, it's pretty near impossible. And so we would have these conversations about how difficult it was to kind of scratch life out of the desert. But invariably, it seemed, on many, many of those Sunday dinner days, conversation would somehow turn to the people around the tacos and tamales table and how it felt like the people eating around the tacos and tamales table were somehow against the people eating around the meat and potatoes table. And as conversation progressed, at some point, conversation would continue to kind of devolve and somebody would tell a terrible joke awful. And they'd use words about my family that I won't share with you, but let's just suffice it to say they were terrible, deeply, deeply wounding. And around the tacos and tamales table, there would be conversation there too about how difficult life was, and there could be times when they would talk about how it felt like the people around the meat and potatoes table were against them making it hard, harder than it needed to be. Now, I will say, the adults around the tacos and tamales table, they were always gracious and, and loving and kind to me, but there were some family members who, they made it clear I didn't belong at that table because I didn't look the part. And so, I want you to imagine what it was like for me as an eight or nine or ten-year-old boy to start kind of coming to this awareness that I sit at these two family tables, but I don't belong at either one of them. That in neither space am I fully welcomed. In one, I'm actually being taught to be ashamed of part of who I am. At both, it feels like there's some part of me that the family is saying is unlovable. And I don't understand that. What do you do when you're a little kid or a growing adult and it feels as though there is a seat at the table that you're allowed to visit, but you're not really allowed to stay in? And so this was my life, these two different family tables. I thought things would get easier, would get better as I went to high school and to college, but I found that these two worlds the meat and potatoes world and the tacos and tamales world, that they would often meet, but they would meet in what seemed more like a clash than a coming together. And it felt to me like I was living in these two worlds that were at odds with each other, these two worlds that could not be reconciled, and I didn't know what to do about that. And even as I continued to grow and interact, I could tell you story after story after story of how I had challenging conversations with people around meat and potatoes tables, about how I really belonged at the tacos and tamales table, and with people around tacos and tamales tables who told me I really belonged at the meat and potatoes table. And I spent so long wondering if there would ever be a place that I could belong. A place where I could be received and accepted and welcomed for who I am. Not told I have to be ashamed for one part or the other. 
Now, the reason I share this with you, and you got to know, I really struggled with how to share this with you, and if we would even talk about it here this weekend. But the reason I share it with you is because I believe that each of us has a story similar to that one. That there have been times for each of us in our lives where we are desperate to know we are seen, we are desperate to know we are loved, we are desperate to know we are accepted for all of who we are. We're desperate for somebody to welcome us to the table and ask us to be a full value member of the family. I struggled in my childhood feeling like I wasn't a full value member of the family. And one of the things that, that changed the course of my life was having an interaction with Jesus. Where I began to discover that Jesus, the one who sees me, Jesus, the one who created me, Jesus, the one who sustains me, Jesus would welcome me to his table. That Jesus would redefine me in what he wanted. And along the way, I discovered a truth that I think is game-changing for each of us, wherever we're at in that journey of belonging and acceptance. It's the first truth in your note guide if you're following along there, and it's this. I am convinced that who we are for matters more than where we are from. And I'm convinced that who we are for mattering more than where we are from is, in fact, part of the way of Jesus. You see... Throughout the scriptures, this truth is sprinkled in the Bible. Even when God identifies a people group that he says, you're going to be my special people who live on purpose for a purpose, who take my life and intention into the world. Even when he identifies a group of people and says, you are somehow peculiar and special on purpose, he tells them and reminds them, but remember, you are blessed to be a blessing for the whole world. It's in the scriptures that we read God speaking to a group of people who are going to end up living in exile away from their homeland. And he says, even though you are exiles, I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the place I am sending you because in its welfare you'll find your own. Right? Here we see throughout the scriptures this idea that who we are for matters more than where we are from. The reality is, for many of us, we have been taught to kind of operate out of where we are from. What are the mistakes that we've made? What are, what's the ethnic background we have? What are the things that we've done in the past that remind us of where we are from? That because of where I'm from in terms of economics or education or geography, that I am incapable of actually being a full value part of the family. But that is not what the way of Jesus teaches. In fact, the way of Jesus would remind us that Jesus is for us. And if Jesus is for us, then we can live for him. And as we live for Jesus, we discover pretty quickly that he moves us to be for all of the people around us. So that every person who we encounter can move into a space of thriving and flourishing. Now, you don't have to take my word for that. In fact, this uh, conversation was happening around a group of Christ followers in the first century, not long after Jesus had come and ministered and died and risen again in power. There was a conversation at a church in Galatia, which, is a, which was a place uh, in the Roman Empire, 
And the conversation at that church was the question of who would get to be a full value member of the family of Jesus? Who would get to sit at the table? And what table would they get to sit at? The question was, who gets to have voice and leadership and purpose in this family of Jesus? Is it the wealthy people who they seem to have it all together and they have wealth that they can leverage for the sake of someone else? Or, or is it the poor people who should have more voice and more opportunity because, you know, the meek will inherit the earth? Is it the slaves who should lead or speak? Probably not. I mean, how would they even learn to do that? They're slaves. But should it be people who own slaves? Because... I mean, they own slaves, so they probably shouldn't have voice and leadership. Like, what's that going to look like? And then, and then what about men or women? Which of them should have more voice or greater leadership? Which of them is really going to belong at the table and be a full-value member of the family? That's the question that's being asked. And then the writer responds to that in this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. Who we are for matters more than where we are from. And friends, I think there are some of us in this space who need to be freed from where we are from, who need to be freed from the things that we've allowed to define us and understand that Jesus wants us to know he is for us. We can live for him. And as we do that, we will live for those around us. What we see in this passage in Galatians is, yes, where we are for matters more than where we are, who we are for matters more than where we are from. But we begin to get this picture that in Christ Jesus, there aren't these multiple tiny little family tables where some people get to belong and some people get to be full value members and some don't. That in Jesus Christ, there is one table and that we are all invited to a seat at it. This is wonderful and beautiful, yes. This is the hope that we have in him. Jesus gave himself to and for all people. And he invites us when we are in Christ Jesus to live to and for all people. We're supposed to follow in the ministry footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, who if you look at his ministry, he moved toward the oppressed and those living in injustice. He moved toward those who needed healing. He moved toward those who were poor. He moved toward those who were crushed under corruption and greed. He moved toward the ones who wouldn't have been allowed to have a seat at any other table. And he moves toward us and invites us to move toward others. The challenge for us, what makes this even more difficult sometimes, is that we live in a world where sometimes our misunderstanding of what gives people value, of what allows people to have a voice at the table, can actually result in open hostility. Where I think we see this play out most readily in our world are in the spaces of race and politics. And the interesting thing to me about those two spaces, race and politics, is they are both entirely human constructs. 
They're both entirely human. We define what race is. We define what politics is. It's our definitions. It's us drawing circles around who's in and who's out, around who's at what table and who isn't, who gets to be a visitor and who gets to be a keeper. When it comes to our world today, we've gotten really good at drawing these lines, these lines that, while helpful for definition sometimes, can actually become spaces where it feels like there are these two worlds who cannot interact together because when they come together, they just clash in a cataclysmic bang. But this is not God's best for us. Rather than being for each other in each of those worlds, sometimes we live as though we are against one another. But again, this is not a new challenge. This is not something that we're just bumping into today. This has been part of the human condition for a long, long time. And in fact, the same writer who reminds us there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male and female, the same writer who reminds us of that addresses this same issue of Dividing lines becoming barriers in spaces of open hostility. And he shows us how we're supposed to interact with that. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and following. So he says, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself, watch this, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You see, these places that can become spaces of open hostility don't have to stay there. In fact, what we see in a nutshell, this scripture, is that there is no barrier Jesus cannot bridge. There is no barrier Jesus cannot bridge. That is true in your relationship with God. Jesus came to bridge impossible, impassable barriers. That is true in your relationship with other people. That Jesus, by his death and resurrection in power, can help bridge these impossible gaps, can help bridge these impassable barriers between us and other people. And that's true when it comes to us and our purpose where it feels like we will never get a chance to fully live into who we were made to be because there's too much in the way. But Jesus, Jesus can bridge that because there is no barrier Jesus cannot bridge. This is good news. This is hopeful. What the writer is speaking to in that Ephesians passage when he talks about a barrier and a wall, he's actually referencing the temple mount in Jerusalem and the temple that was built for people to worship God. And at one point in history, the only division was between where the priests could go into the manifest presence of God and where everybody else had to wait. But in conversation, there, the people decided that they wanted to make sure they were being extra super duper holy. 
And so what they did is they built extra barriers and walls and said, so this is where people who are of Jewish descent are allowed to worship. But even in that, we have to separate the men from the women. And so there's a wall between the two. And this is the barrier where everybody who's not a Jew can come and worship, but there has to be a separation between the men and the women. And so there were these impossible, impassable barriers between people and even how they could worship God. And the writer is saying, no, 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 no. Don't you understand? Jesus crossed the impossible barrier of death. And if Jesus can conquer death, then there is no barrier he cannot overcome. Then these dividing walls of hostility, these places where we've drawn circles and said, you're in and you're out, they do not exist in Christ Jesus. The only defining thing in Jesus with him is who is in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are at the table. You have a voice. You have opportunity. You have space. In place. Jesus is the one who brings us to this place of shared purpose. Jesus is the one who offers to cross and bridge barriers for us. But here's the thing. Just like we were talking about how who we're for matters more than where we're from, and that when we experience what it means for Jesus to be for us, he sends us out to be for other people. When we see Jesus bridge impossible barriers, we are invited to be part of bridging impossible barriers for others. When we are in Christ, that's part of what we are to do. We're to bridge impossible barriers for others. One space where we are part of that is actually through the Esperanza Legal Assistance Center. Since its opening in January of 2017, ELAC has served 412 individuals as they have tried to navigate the impossible, impassable barriers sometimes of our legal and immigration systems. We have been part of helping bridge some impossible barriers. And I want to share with you one story, one story of those 412 where God used you to be part of something that changed everything for one family. Let's take a look at this. Laura Donna was raised in Peru. She met her husband, William, an American citizen working as a contractor, got married, and began a family. When William's contract was finished, they decided to move back to the United States as a family. When he um, finished the contract in, in Peru, we have to move to the United States. It was uh, hard for me, for my boy, for everything, because it's different culture, a different language, different everything. I mean, it's, it was a, a very hard transition. Yeah. When Laura Donna got to the U.S., she began the process of acclimating to her new surroundings, getting around town, learning the language, and getting a driver's license. I went to the um, driver's license place and filled all the papers and signed all the papers. Remember, I signed all papers without knowing what they say. I just do whatever they told me. Sometimes through the driver's license process, someone will end up being handed a voter registration card. And if they don't necessarily understand English or they don't have someone to explain it, they'll be told, fill out this card and sign it. 
But what many don't understand is that on that card it's saying, I am a U.S. citizen. So I did all this with my sister-in-law. She speak only English and finished the process. Several years later, Laura Donna decided to proceed with the citizenship journey. After she went through the process of applying to be a U.S. citizen, she received a letter telling her she was being denied for a lack of good moral character. I was thinking, oh my goodness, how they can say that? I have been so good with everything, honest and everything. They can't tell me this. They didn't understand what is what happened here and praying and asked the Lord why they accused me about something I never did. I mean, it's the first time I feel unjust. I mean, everything go down for me. It was a very hard situation, not only for me, it was for my husband, for my boy, for my family, for everyone. I say, I will never try again to be citizen because this is the way they trick me and this is not fair at all. So I pray and ask the Lord to help me, to give me wisdom what I need to do. And God told me, you have to trust in me. As Laura Donna began to interact with Heritage and the Legal Assistance Center, the question of pursuing her citizenship arose. So I shared my story with Carolyn, and she said, let's go do it. I said, I don't want to open my case because my heart is destroyed, and I don't want to, to hear any more injustice. And she said, let's go do it. Let's go do it. Let's go put in God's hands, and we start the process. In Laura Donna's case, she had documentation and a letter from the first time she applied. And so I was able to sit down with that paperwork and say, okay, yes, this is what happened, but it was not her fault, and let me show you why. So I say, oh my goodness, she finally, somebody finally believed in me, you know? Somebody finally believed in what I'm saying is true. And um, I remember the day when we, I have that interview after all the process and the long waiting, I was completely trusting God, knowing he will do whatever he do as his will. And he did it. He bring me a paper and say, congratulations, you are a citizen. My husband called me and said, congratulations, you are a citizen. And I start crying and say, yes, God did it. And this is my story. Isn't God good? What a great story. And you know, you are part of Loredana's story. You are part of the, the 411 others who have interacted with the Legal Assistance Center seeking help in working with our legal and immigration systems. Now, I want to share with you a map that actually shows us where these clients have come from in the world. We are part of global reach, of global impact when we help people cross these impossible barriers of relationship and connection. This is just Esperanza Legal Assistance Center. And, and so what this represents here, as I mentioned, are 412 individuals that have been served, 289 different cases from 43 countries on six continents. Can you guess the one continent that's not represented in that? It's, it's Antarctica. You can't, you can't do that. But this is 
amazing. And what I love about this is that you and I are part of these stories of people who are interacting, looking for help with immigration, with citizenship, with many other different kinds of of, uh, assistance legally. We get to be part of their stories, and you are part of them. You are part of the ministry at Argro's house. You are part of feeding hungry families. You are part of ministry at the Rock Island County Jail. You are part of loving our brothers at Kiwan. You are part of so much when you pray and when you give and when you serve in our missional arenas. You are part of that. You are part of seeing Jesus cross impossible barriers. And I love that. I love that we get to be part of that. Thank you for doing that. Thanks for being part of it. If you want to continue to engage in that, you want to say, I am willing to pray, to give, to connect in serving in these ways, use the Go Be Love card that's in your seat back or around you to be able to communicate that with us and place it in an offering later today. Now, part of what is so exciting to me about the the ELAC uh, story and, and part of what's exciting to me about what God is doing is that it shows us this unity in diversity that he's inviting us as heritage into. He's, it's showing us what unity in diversity can be. And so we have this global impact even through ELAC, but also I told you I get to serve as our interim Vida Nueva campus pastor. And a few weeks ago, we had Five different heart languages represented at Vida Nueva in worship. Five of them. And what that means is that on that same weekend, across our body, we had many languages represented as people worshipped together. We had, uh, we had American Sign Language, English, French, Swahili. We had Portuguese. We had uh, Bantu. We had all of these different languages, heart languages represented. And I know that that brings pleasure and joy to God's heart. Because here's what happens. Unity in diversity, friends. Unity in diversity gives us a glimpse of heaven. Unity and diversity gives us this sense of what heaven is going to be like and is like. In fact, one of Jesus' closest friends, a man named John, toward the end of his life, had an opportunity to interact with the risen Jesus. And he had this vision of Jesus who actually invited him to observe some things that were going on in heaven. And he's using John to bring encouragement and peace and truth to the church who was being horribly oppressed and persecuted. And it was a reminder that Jesus is in charge, that there's no barrier he can't overcome, that who we are for matters more than where we're from. It was all of that and more. But there's one of those glimpses of heaven I want you to take a look at with me here. It's in Ephesians chapter 7. And this is what he says. He says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And he continues, 
all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And amen. This, friends, shows us that unity in diversity does give us this glimpse of heaven. Do you see what happened in that passage of Scripture? That a whole multitude of followers of Jesus from every tribe and tongue and language and nation were present and they worshiped. They had given everything for Jesus, even their own lives. And when they worshiped and they proclaimed that Jesus is king, when they worshiped and they proclaimed that there is one table, when they worshiped and they proclaimed that Jesus is in charge, there's nothing he cannot overcome, that there is hope and light and life. When they proclaimed that, it caused the angels in heaven to worship and proclaim glory to God. I am so preaching better than you are responding right now. <laughs> this is a beautiful picture of what it means for us and why it's so significant is that Jesus told you and me that we are to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we are part of unity in diversity, we are bringing his will on earth as it is in heaven. And it is good and it is wonderful and it is powerful. And we are part of it together, but it takes, it takes the spirit of the risen Jesus to fill us to overflowing with all that he is. It takes the spirit of the risen Jesus to go before us and ahead of us. And the reason, part of the reason we're talking about this is I believe God wants this to be part of the heritage we are building together, of our heritage together. It will take the spirit of Jesus. It will take us choosing authentic love and pursuing Christ together in intense spirituality. It will take radical generosity as we've never seen it before. It will take faithful risk and hopeful partnership and being on passionate mission together, but it is so worth it. It will take all of this and more, but we get to do it together. Yes, this is a call for us to be obedient. It's a call to us to trust, to risk, to go together in unity and passion and compassion toward the things that Jesus moves us toward, to be for people, because after all, that's so much more important than where we're from. Those are all good things, but there's one more reason why I want to invite us into these spaces. And it's something that, that I have discovered in my own personal journey. You know, as I stepped into the interim pastoral role with Vida Nueva, presuming that I would serve for a little while as, as their interim leader as best I could and was thrilled to do that, that I would leave when the new permanent leader came and that would be that. And I would serve and give of myself and happy to do it. But I have experienced Jesus out of my own story, not just allowing me to love and serve Vida Nueva, but I've experienced Jesus using Vida Nueva to heal my own heart, to heal parts of my journey. And I've discovered in that this truth, 
that the wounds we receive in community are seldom, if ever, healed in isolation. That the wounds we receive in community are seldom, if ever, healed in isolation. But that's what we want, isn't it? We hope that Jesus will invite us out of the crowd, in a sense, into a corner by ourselves and kind of magically zap us with healing. But what I've discovered is that he actually invites us to experience the healing he offers, not in isolation, but as part of community, as part of unity in diversity, as part of crossing impossible barriers, as part of being for the very people Jesus is for. That it's when we live in that way, we begin to experience healing in our own hearts and in our own souls that we never knew was possible, but oh, how we hope that it is. Wounds received in community are seldom ever healed in isolation. And so part of this, part of this is an invitation for us to come to the table, to the one table, and find the healing that you've been searching for as you choose to be for those around you. I'm going to pray for us. I'm actually going to pray a prayer of scripture, a prayer of blessing found in the book of Ephesians. It's the same prayer that you're invited to use this week as the prayer of the people in your note guide. But you see, this prayer was written and comes in scripture quickly following that passage in Ephesians that we read where the writer says the wall of hostility has been torn down because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That the things we try to make that define us don't have to define us. We can instead be defined as those who are in Christ. And so I'm going to simply pray this passage over us as one family and pray for God's blessing over us. I invite you to join me in that. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, Heritage Church, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, Heritage, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you, my family, may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.